Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sabbath School Gems, where each week we showcase key concepts from this week's Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath School lesson. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Sabbath School Gems. This is Lesson 5 for the third quarter of 2022, and it's titled Extreme Heat for Sabbath, July 30th. And it's from the quarterly In the Crucible with Christ. Now, by this title, Extreme Heat, and the intro to this lesson, the idea is, is posited that God pushing the boundaries to being misunderstood by causing these extreme challenges. And goes through some extreme challenges that God's people have gone through. But I'd like to say at the outset that I think this is a situation like we had in previous gems in this quarter, that these situations are unusual. And the question really is God causing these challenges or is he bringing the people through the challenges? That was some topic that we talked about last week. So let's just start with Sunday, and that's Abraham in the crucible. And we all know the story about Abraham when he was told to offer his son as a sacrifice. So we could read that in Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Very specific, very specific instructions, and he's going to tell them the exact mountain that he's going to go to. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And then, you know, we go on and we know what happened. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And then in verse 12, we say, the angel came down and said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and took the ram, offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Further down in there, it says, by myself, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And that's the key, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, the question is, was this some agonizing, extreme test? You know, we don't see a lot of struggle in the Bible. It just doesn't say. I mean, it just says Abraham took up the very next day. He got his things. There was, there's not a lot of struggle. There's not a lot of thinking or contemplating or discussing with Sarah or with, with Isaac or anything. He just takes the stuff, doesn't even tell his son. And his son is kind of wondering well, what's going on here. And he, he just does it. So we don't, we don't necessarily see that there's this big challenge and this extreme heat and this big extreme struggle. I think what's happening here is God is testing Abraham, but he knows the results. The lesson study itself asks that question. Why did God ask Abraham to offer the sacrifice? If he knows everything, what's the point? Well, that's the whole point. He does know everything. And I think he knew that Abraham's faith was strong enough. And this was, this was to demonstrate maybe to Abraham, but maybe also to the rest of us, 
how strong his faith really was. And that, I think, is the main point so that we can see. But see, this, you know, the, the lesson brings out that the timing was calculated to exact the deepest possible anguish. But again, I ask the question, there's, we don't see that deep possible anguish. We don't see Abraham anguishing. The Bible says nothing of that. We're reading that in thinking, well, if God told me, you know, to sacrifice my child, yeah, I would have anguish. But we're reading that into the story. It's not there. And the reason why it's not there, I believe, is because it's not important. It's not important about the struggle or the challenge or whatever Abraham, because I don't even think it existed. Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets, and the lesson brings us out that God had reserved his last most trying test for Abraham until the burden of years was heavy upon him and he yearned for rest. But what does that mean exactly? Because it is true, he reserved this test. It's like an exam. Is his faith strong enough? Will he go to this extent? And I'm sure he, he had burdens of years were heavy upon him and he yearned for rest. But what does that mean? Does that mean that he was, you know, reserving it to be the most challenging possible for Abraham? I don't think so. I think what it means is, is that Abraham had already gone through all the trials. He had already been strengthening his faith. From the very beginning, he was asked by God to leave his father and his father's land and just pick up and go. And he was following God and he was stumbling along the way, you know, at some point he thought he could help God bring in the promised son. And, you know, he made some mistakes, but through each of those mistakes, he just grew stronger in his faith. He grew more reliant on God and he saw that God can do miracles that God could bring him a son in his old age and in Sarah's old age. He saw these miracles, and so he had that strength, that strength of his faith. And I think this is really to show us how, how he progressed from being strong in faith, tripping a little bit, and then getting to this point in his life where he realized, he recognized, I'm sure when this idea was first posed to him, okay, Moses, take your son, he was probably thinking, wait a minute, this is the son of promise. How can I sacrifice him? And how can you fulfill all these things? And then he probably just thought, you know what? If I don't have a relationship with God, I don't have the promise anyway. So he could either sacrifice his son and just trust God that he's going to fulfill the promise by whatever means, all the miracles and stuff, or he can sever his relationship with God not listen to God and not obey him, and then the promise is gone. So I think at this point, Moses' faith was strong enough to realize that if he didn't have a relationship with God and he wasn't following God, that that covenant was broken and he wouldn't get that promise anyway. So I think this is really showing Abraham's faith, the extent of his faith, and that's to be an example for us. Monday's lesson it talks about wayward Israel, and it's the story of Hosea, the prophet, and he's told by the Lord to take a wife that's among a prostitute, and she's, she's a prostitute when he takes her as a wife, and then she's unfaithful to him while they're married, and, and I guess what the lesson is trying to say is it's the harsh language and stuff that, that the Lord is using, showing the people how they have apostatized like a prostitute that they have gone after false worship and false gods 
and they've left them and he's going to call them back. So here's a story and I'll just read it starting in Hosea chapter two. It says, say to your brother, my people and to your sisters, mercy has shown me. Bring charges against your mother, bring charges for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with her thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. See, she's a prostitute and she's thinking that her goodies are coming from her lovers when really it was her husband that was giving it. It's really God that was giving Israel all their blessings. Going on in verse six, it says, therefore behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her path. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yeah, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband for then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her the grain and the new wine and the oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore, I will return and take my grain in its time and my new wine in its season and will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. In other words, God was giving them such blessings. They were supposed to be a people that was entering into the covenant relationship. And so he was going to be their husband. They were going to make the Lord their, their God. And he was going to be a husband to them. And he was giving them all these gifts. And they just behaved unfaithfully. They went after the other gods. We were warned of this. And this is what happened. And so God is saying, I'm going to take back all this stuff. And verse 13, I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned insects. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, says the Lord. Mentions something about the risk of recognizing that God's not in this. You know, they're getting all this punishment, I guess. But this is very difficult to, to not know where this was coming from. Not only was Hosea demonstrating it to the people, showing them, this is how you're acting toward God. This is, you know, the, it's like God took this prostitute and made her a wife, took you guys out of Egypt and brought you to himself bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to himself and gave you all these good things and brought you into the promised land. And then you just went after all these idols and all this idolatrous worship, which God specifically said not to do. This is just fulfilling what was already charged to them before back in the time of Moses when he was on the mountain and he came down and we can read that in Deuteronomy it says so it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers to Abraham Isaac Jacob to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build houses full of all good things which you didn't fill hewn out wells which you did not dig vineyards and olives which you did not plant when you have eaten and are full then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name you shall not go after other gods the gods of the people who are all around you for the lord your god is a jealous god among you lest the anger of the lord your god be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth you shall not tempt the lord your god as you tempted him in Massah. you shall diligently keep the commandments of the lord your god his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded to you this is moses's instruction to them right before they're going into the promised land 
And he's telling him, don't forget, don't forget. For the Lord is a jealous God. And even in Deuteronomy 8, it says, starting in verse 7, it says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And when you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which you were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was, was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna. You know, we, we talked about this last, I think the last lessons, that he was bringing them through the trials. He wasn't leading them into trials. He was giving them water from the flinty rock. He was feeding them with the manna. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. What is that covenant? That they will be, that they will make him their God and, and he will be their God and they will be his people. And then it says, then it shall be if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish as the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. So I don't think we should have any problem or they should have any problem knowing that this is God, it, it, that God already foretold all this that was going to happen. And then he's sending a prophet with Hosea pointing it out to them that they have gone astray that they have gone after their idolatry and they have forgotten God and the covenant and the, the agreement that they made to follow God and his statutes and his commandments. That's what's happening here. I'm not sure what it means by misunderstanding God because there seems like it's pretty clear. Then we know that at the end, after all this, God calls his people back. And he calls his people back, and we can read that in Hosea and also in Jeremiah and in Isaiah. He brings them back to renew this covenant. And I'll just read, oh, let's see. Well, Hosea 20, Hosea 2.23, it says, Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. That's the covenant language. In Jeremiah, it's the same thing that he says, he's going to restore health to you and heal your wounds. That's Jeremiah 30, 17. He's going to bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will glorify them and they shall not be small. And then in the end, we get to Jeremiah 30, 22. It says, you shall be my people and I will be your God. And then 
Again, Jeremiah 31, 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So I think the main thing we get out of this is these people might have been going through challenges, but this was definitely warned about from the before they even entered the, the promised land. And now it's being demonstrated through Hosea and, and this this prostitute. So I'm not sure how you can be confused about where this is coming from or what the purpose of it is. And we also know that it's another thing that God is going to deliver them out of if they will just turn to him and repent. And he will have a people at the end of time that will allow him to make a new covenant with them. Okay, now Tuesday's lesson is titled Surviving Through Worship. And this is Job and Job's story. We went over this before, but I'll just read Job 1. 6 through 12, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of man came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And we know what happens. We know Job gets all these afflictions. The lesson study says God is the one that is instigating this because he's the one that's pointing out to Satan. He's saying, Satan, hey, look, look at, look at my servant Job, you know. Isn't he good? And of course Satan's going to say, well, well, no, you know, he's good just because you're giving him all these goodies. And, and so the, the question the lesson says is, lesson study asks that question, is this a special case or is it characteristic? Well, it's a special case because this story is almost like a parable. I'm not saying that it didn't really happen, but it's illustrating a point. And when we look at it so literally, we miss the point. It's just like that rich man in Lazarus. Luke 16, when it says, he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. I mean, people take that parable and they, they, they may turn it so literal that churches have built a whole theology around this suffering and hellfire and everything just from that text, but it's trying to illustrate a point. And the same thing with Job. This is trying to illustrate a point. It's not saying that God is sitting up there and every bad thing that happens to a good person, God is saying, well, okay, Satan, I'll, I'll let you do this much to this person and I'll, I'll let you, yeah, you can, you can let this bad thing happen to him. That would mean that God would be spending practically all his time just rubber stamping how much suffering he's going to allow. That's absurd. It's absurd to, to think that when you go to its logical conclusion, that's what it's saying. We should be careful not to conclude that from Job because there's so many other important things that we do need to take from Job that God doesn't want to cause us harm. First of all, he's giving good things to Job. He doesn't want Job to have harm. He wants to give good things to his servants. And we are not to suppose that just because a person is suffering that it has anything to do with God. And that's like the opposite of what people are concluding. They're saying, well, this bad thing's happening, so God must have allowed it. But it's actually the opposite. It's saying 
we shouldn't just see someone suffering and think that, okay, they made God angry because maybe they didn't. Maybe they're just suffering. Maybe they're suffering because there's evil in this world and Satan likes suffering. That's a conclusion that we should be getting. See, all Job's friends, they were judging him. And they were trying to say, come on, we we know you did something wrong. And Job's like, no, I didn't. (laughs) And so the conclusion that we should take away is that God doesn't, he's not there orchestrating suffering. And the other thing is, is that God doesn't need to put us to the test. I think this is the main lesson what Job is illustrating is that God doesn't have to push people to the extremes to see if they're faithful or not. He knows. He knew Job was faithful. He knew it and Job knew it. He doesn't have to do that. It's good for us to see that because we can see that even if your faith is strong, even in adversity, even in the things that we would think are almost impossible to be able to do, like Abraham sacrificing his son, we say, well, I could never do that. Well, we see how strong their faith is. And we can see that with Job, that he can endure and he could still praise God and bless God and worship God. And we should be like Job to be faithful, even if we don't understand why we're suffering or we don't think it's fair, because there's a lot of things in this world that are not fair. We should still remain faithful to God because he's not the one He wants to give us good things. Okay, and then Wednesday's lesson is titled Surviving Through Hope. And this is talking about now Paul's suffering and the suffering of the early Christians and how through the suffering that they were suffering, that Paul was suffering, that they could use that to comfort others. I'm going to read in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 6. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. For if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Here it's writing that, that Christ is being a comfort to them in their tribulations, and that they can then be a comfort to others. But the question is, do we have to go through suffering in order to comfort others? In other words, do we need to have that experience? Or is God using the situation? Is he using people who have gone through this and people are going to suffer? And this is, this is giving us hope and, and this is encouraging words that, there is going to be suffering. If you follow Christ, there will be suffering, but don't, don't lose hope because Christ endured suffering and he came out and he's sitting on the right hand of the throne of God. But just because God can use our suffering to help others doesn't mean he's causing it. It doesn't mean that we have to have it. We don't have to have it. Just the fact that our suffering can be used to give encouragement to others and hope to others, that's a good thing. That's because God is taking something that's bad and he's making it good. And there's words of encouragement. Second Corinthians 1, just going on, it says, and our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we, we despaired even of life. They went through some really 
torturous things. And it says, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. They were brought to the brink of death that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us and whom we trust that he will still deliver us. So he's dating the struggles that they went, brought them to the brink of death, but they still had that hope. And so he's bringing that encouragement to others. Going on in Thursday's lesson, the lesson study says, okay, well, we've seen all these examples now. We've seen this extreme heat, I guess, what, how the lesson study puts it. These are things that people have gone through. Maybe they're challenging. Maybe they're not as challenging as, as we think they are. But it's saying, don't these examples make God look like a bully? And I'm thinking, I don't know how they make God look like a bully because we can see at every step, God is delivering us from perils of evil and he's helping the prophets and the saints, Jesus, the apostles and early Christians. He's helping them not to be overcome by all these things. Isaiah 43, one through when and two says, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. And when I, when I read that, I go straight to Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 has has the answer. It, it has the answer of what we should do. Let me just read that. Psalm 91, it says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High, that's the secret. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God and Him I will trust. See, when you're in this covenant relationship, God is going to be the master. He's going to be the husband. He's going to be the protector. He's going to be the, the shepherd. He's going to be the deliverer. And it says, surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. We dwell with God. We make him our dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon you, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. Because we know the name of God. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You know, the lesson brings out different things that we can take from Job's response that he accepts its helpfulness and that he remembers that God is in total control. And it's got like this little checklist of things that we go by. And Paul's response, you know, he points to God's proven track record and he 
sets his attention on God. And it's like, it's like we can follow Paul or we can follow Job or we can follow Abraham and go through their little checklist of items of things that we can react when we're in trouble. But you know what? We don't need to go by their checklist. We just need to have their faith. We need to look at them as examples of how did they grow their faith. Abraham didn't have Abraham as an example. Maybe he had the story of Job, I don't know. But he certainly didn't have his story. And Paul didn't have, you know, Paul had the story of Abraham and Job, but he didn't have his story, the apostles, Jesus, the stoning of Stephen. I mean, these people had the faith, but where did they get it from? They didn't get it from studying and saying, okay, well, what did Paul do when he was in trouble? Let's go through this checklist. I mean, we can read these things and be encouraged by it, but the really what we need to do is have the relationship that they had. How do we dwell in the secret place of the Most High? How do we know his name and call upon him? Well, it starts with listening to God. It starts with listening to him and keeping his commandments and being obedient searching for him with all our hearts, longing to be part of that covenant relationship, you know, respecting the Bible, respecting what the, what the Lord told the people and not forgetting what he said, not forgetting his statutes and his judgments and his commandments, not forgetting his words and what he was instructing because he wants to talk to us even today. He wants to tell us how to walk with him. But when we read things in the Bible and we dismiss them or we think that they're just old or done away with or they're just for some other people and some other time in history we're neglecting his words that he said and him as god and he's defining himself as god and what he wants from us and so that's where it started with abraham abraham listened to god and he was following god job was listening to god and doing what god was asking him to do and so and even Hosea, the prophets, they were doing these things that, you know, they were asked to do some pretty horrendous things. You know, Ezekiel was told to make bread on human dung. Of course, he didn't end up doing that. But the, the Jeremiah and Elijah and Elisha and all these prophets, they were asked to do some pretty stressful, strenuous things for God. But they listened to him. They were listening to him. They were hearing him. And, you know, sometimes we think, well, Am I, how do I hear God? But if we hear him by following what we do know, there, yes, there can be other things that he's telling us to do, but the things that are obvious, the things that are in the Bible, we can start there. The things that are in the Bible that he told the children of Israel to do, he wants us to do those same things, not just dismiss it. We can start there and have respect for him and listen to him and let him guide our lives and spend time with him. That's what I think we should take away from this lesson and what we can take from Abraham and from Job and from Hosea is that these people had a relationship with God and we need to seek after having that same kind of relationship. And that's my prayer for each one listening to this, that we will all have that kind of a relationship and that we will be growing so that we, when we get to a point in time where we're tested, that we will pass, just as Abraham and just as Job. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Sabbath School Gems. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word to others. 
Comments and questions can be sent to us at sabbathschoolgems at gmail.com. Bye for now.